Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I gotta start by talking about a case that has no hero, where there's not a single person to root for and uh, everyone turned out to be an asshole. That's right, the death of Kaylee Anthony. A quick refresher in case you've managed to block it out. Kaylee Anthony was a cute little three-year-old girl from Florida who tragically died in some unknown way, maybe a murder, maybe an accident, in 2008. The mystery kicked off on July 15, 2008, when Cindy Anthony, Kaylee's grandmother, called 911. She told the operator that she'd not seen Kaylee for 31 days and had noticed that her daughter's car smelled like a dead body. So the police visited Kaylee's mother, Casey Anthony, and were like, uh, hey, where's your little girl? And Casey was all, oh, oh yeah, my uh, nanny kidnapped her a month ago and and they were like, what? Why didn't you call us? And she was all, my bad. Oh, okay, look, well, what's what's the name of your nanny, they asked. To which she said, um, Zanny? Are you telling me your nanny's name was Zanny? Your nanny was Zanny. Uh, that's right. You made that up. What What's her last name? To which Casey said, um, Fernandez G- Gonzalez. Yeah, that's right. Nanny Zanny Fernandez Gonzalez. This was such a bullshit story that Casey was charged with murder, even though Kaylee's body had not been found. Do you know how hard it is to charge someone with murder without a body? It's like really, really hard. Almost never happens, even in Florida. Kaylee's remains were discovered soon after. On December 11th, the girl's skeleton was found with a blanket inside a trash bag not far from her grandparents' home. They found some duct tape on or or beside her skull. The medical examiner ruled the death a homicide based on the presence of the duct tape, which could have been used to strangle the girl. 
Then a forensic specialist examined Casey's computer and found that somebody using that computer had searched for information about chloroform. Now that they had a body, prosecutors went after the death penalty. Casey got a defense lawyer, a guy named Jose Baez. His defense was not that Casey was completely innocent. After all, how do you argue around the fact that this mother hadn't reported her daughter missing for a month? The defense was that Kaylee accidentally drowned in the family pool, and it was Casey's father, George, who disposed of the body. They alleged that Casey stayed silent because she didn't want to get in trouble for not watching her kid, and she was scared of George because he sexually abused her as a child, an allegation that George adamantly denied. You see how this case has no winners? It's a mess, and the media was terrible too. Look, Kaylee's story is a goddamn tragedy, but it wouldn't have been the biggest story of 2008 if not for Nancy Grace. She covered every aspect of the developing story, giving Casey her own clickbait nickname, Tot Mom. She went on Bill O'Reilly's show to explain the purpose of the new name. When I was in law school, she said, I would often get cases that I would have to memorize hundreds and hundreds, sometimes thousands, uh, of pages of legal documents for class, and it was easier for me to remember a case by the content of the case, not the name. In this case, I needed content that would fit at the bottom of the screen so our viewer would know what we're talking about. And Tot Mom fit. It was nothing personal. The trial began on May 24th, 2011 and lasted several weeks. Over 400 pieces of evidence were admitted. Each side had their own witnesses and experts. My favorite story to come out of this, a story that illustrates what a fantastically bad liar Casey Anthony is, is the story about what happened when police asked her about her job. She told her parents that she worked at Universal Studios. When the detectives asked her about this, she said, oh yeah, that's where I work. Sure thing. So they asked her to take them to her office. She went to Universal Studios with them and led them into a building where she walked around looking for her office before finally admitting that in fact she didn't work at Universal Studios at all. That's Casey Anthony in a nutshell, getting caught in a lie and stubbornly protecting the secret till the bitter end. Anyway, the trial ended on the 4th of July. The jury reached a verdict the next day. Such a quick verdict after a long trial surely meant a conviction. But then the jury announced that they'd found Casey not guilty of first-degree murder, or manslaughter, or even child abuse. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to tell you the jury did the right thing that day. You know why? Because the prosecutors jumped the gun. Remember how they charged Casey with murder before they found the body? Well, the evidence found at the crime scene supported the theory of an accidental drowning, not murder. But drowning was not what Casey was charged with. She was charged with murder. So even though everyone could see that Casey was a liar, the jury didn't believe she killed her kid because the evidence wasn't there. They had reasonable doubts. ABC News caught up with juror number three, a woman named Jennifer Ford, after the verdict. I did not say she was innocent, Ford told them. I just said there was not enough evidence. If you cannot prove what the crime was, you can't determine what the punishment should be. So what do you think? How would you have voted if you were a member of that jury and you knew your verdict could end a life? 
And what is reasonable doubt anyway? Would you believe me if I told you nobody really knows? That there's no standard definition that a judge can point to and say, this, this is what I mean. It's undefined. It's wonky. And it may be one of the most important protections we have to keep innocent people out of prison. This is The Philosophy of Crime, and I'm your host, James Renner. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Let's jump in, shall we? The term beyond a reasonable doubt is a standard of proof that must be met before convicting someone of a serious crime in the United States. It's not the only standard of proof that exists, but it is the highest. For instance, a very low standard of proof is simply the burden of production, sometimes called prima facie, a Latin expression meaning first face or at first glance. The prosecutor needs to present just enough evidence to convince a judge not to throw out a case. The next level of proof is probable cause, which is what a grand jury should reach before issuing an indictment for a crime. It's a very low standard, so low in fact that we have this old saying that a grand jury will indict a ham sandwich. There's also a standard of proof known as preponderance of evidence, which is used in civil court decisions and means that you're at least 50.1% sure that a person is guilty. And now we come to beyond a reasonable doubt. So how sure of guilt does a jury member need to be to find someone guilty beyond a reasonable doubt? 
nobody really knows. It's technically undefined. All we know is that it's not 100%. The jury does not have to be 100% sure of a person's guilt to convict, even for murder. It's somewhere between 50.1% and 99.9, or roughly as pure as ivory soap. Wait, what? James Renner, are you telling me nobody has bothered to write an actual definition of beyond a reasonable doubt? Yes, but hold off on that for just a second. Even though it's undefined, beyond a reasonable doubt has been the standard of proof for criminal conviction for a long time. Like, a very, very long time. Beyond a reasonable doubt is an idea that's based on something a guy named William Blackstone said 250 years ago. Blackstone said, It is better that ten guilty persons escape than that one innocent person suffer. So if we have any doubt that a person committed a crime, it's better to let them go, because if we're wrong, we're taking away someone's freedom, and that's a terrible injustice. We wouldn't want to be the innocent man sent to prison, right? The idea was to always err on the side of innocence. And as far as anyone can tell, beyond a reasonable doubt means that if you're not sure in your heart that someone did what they were charged with, it's your obligation to acquit. Now, a brief history lesson, if you'll permit me. Maybe it'll be a bonus question on Jeopardy or something, and you can look really smart. Sir William Blackstone is very important, and we should know a little bit about him. He was an English judge and scholar in the 1700s. Picture Mitch McConnell in an old-timey pompous wig. That's the look. And fitting, since Blackstone was a Tory, a member of the Conservative Party of England. Smart, smart guy, but kind of pedantic. You know, like, that one kid in Boy Scouts who knew the motto and law by heart and had 50 merit badges by the time he reached first class, but didn't ever play capture the flag with any of the other kids. Blackstone had a knack for explaining the archaic and mind-numbingly boring English laws and court procedures so that anyone could understand the law. He began giving lectures about law. These lectures became so popular that he collected them in a four-volume text known as his Commentaries. When our founding fathers won independence from England, they read through Blackstone's Commentaries as they constructed a new set of laws for the United States. Setting the standard of proof as beyond a reasonable doubt in criminal proceedings was very important to Blackstone so it made its way into our laws as well. Blackstone realized that it's human nature to desire vengeance for a crime, but he knew that vengeance was fickle and fleeting. And if we start condemning innocent people simply because they might be guilty, we would eventually lose all confidence in our system of laws. We would all live in fear of being the next innocent man to go. While Blackstone popularized this idea of protecting the innocent at the expense of letting some guilty people go, that concept is as old as history. Check out Genesis 18.23. This is where Abraham and God are checking out the city of Sodom, and God is like, I don't know, Abe, I gotta tell you, I'm thinking about just whoosh, knocking this whole place down and starting over. This city's full of wicked people doing some really gross things. And Abraham asked, Will you consume the righteous and the wicked? What if there's 50 righteous people living in that city, will you consume and not spare the place for 50 righteous who are in it? Well, now I guess you have a point. Okay, what if there were fewer than 50? 
What if there's only 10 good people down there? And the Lord said, Yes, you're right. It would not be cool to kill a few innocent people that might be down there too. Let's get them out first. The next bit of history is kind of an aside, but I have to mention it because it's bonkers. This beyond a reasonable doubt thing, it came up during the Salem witch trials too. The president of Harvard at the time was a dude named Increase Mather, and he cautioned against burning every old single woman at the stake. It were better that ten suspected witches should escape than that one innocent person should be condemned. Ironically, this man's son, Cotton Mather, wrote a book called Memorable Providences, which claimed witches and devils were real and living among us. This book became supporting evidence for the witch trials, which condemned so, so many innocent people. Oh, hey, also, did you know that right after 9-11, we kind of got rid of beyond a reasonable doubt in the military tribunals and detention centers? We needed a fast track to information, and waterboarding was easy and cost-effective. When researchers told Vice President Dick Cheney that 25% of the suspected terrorists that we were torturing were later proven innocent, and that maybe we ought not to be doing that anymore— Cheney told them, and I quote, I'm more concerned with bad guys who got out and released than I am with the few that were in fact innocent. I'd do it again in a minute. And yet, the burden of proof in American criminal courts remains beyond a reasonable doubt. We haven't gotten rid of it yet, not for lack of trying. And the main point of contention when they do try to toss it out is its definition, or lack of a concrete definition. What does it mean, beyond a reasonable doubt? It's tricky. It's abstract. It's fluid. Subjective. What does reasonable mean? What, for that matter, is doubt? Our founders didn't want to define it because as soon as you do, you prescribe an agenda by your choice of words, and its definition leans in favor of the defense or in favor of the prosecution. If I defined doubt as uncertainty... That doesn't quite cut it. A juror is allowed to feel uncertain to an extent. Can we ever really know the truth of the matter? I have an episode coming up that explores objective truth and whether it really exists or not. It's a, it's a whole deal. No, a juror can have some doubt, but is their doubt reasonable? Is their doubt fair and sensible? Well, sensible to me might mean something different than it means to you. It's this subjectivity that makes it so beautiful and strong, because jurors are subjective, but they work together as an objective body, the goal being to be better than the sum of its parts. It's important to have a couple jurors that disagree with the majority. It causes important debate and discussion, and a conviction should have to stand up to arguments against it, because a conviction is forever, and the loss of freedom The loss of will, that's about the worst thing you can do to somebody. So they better deserve it, you know? So what happens is, when it's time for the jury to deliberate, the judge will sometimes instruct the jury on what reasonable doubt could mean, or what it means to them. And now it gets even more complicated, because there's no rules about what you can say about reasonable doubt, but there are rules about what you cannot say. In 1994, the U.S. Supreme Court had an opportunity to define beyond a reasonable doubt, when they heard the case of Victor v. Nebraska. This case concerned two different definitions of reasonable doubt, 
one given to a jury in California, and one given to a jury in Nebraska. The California case was about a guy who shot three men in a gang-related hit. Two of them died. Then he killed a man who went to the cops to rat him out. And then he killed that guy's wife. He was convicted on four counts of first-degree murder and sentenced to death. In the Nebraska case, a guy murdered an 82-year-old woman. He was convicted and sentenced to death as well. Their defense lawyers, however, took issue with some weird wording in how the judges in those cases defined beyond a reasonable doubt for the jurors. It's very important that jurors only consider evidence brought up in trial. They can't, for instance, say a guy's guilty because he looks guilty. They must be able to point to evidence to justify their decision. Well, in both the California and Nebraska case, the judges used the term moral certainty in their definitions. But moral certainty is no good. Moral implies feelings, emotions, superstitions, prejudice, all bad things for an indifferent court. And that word, certainty, it has no place in the definition of doubt, does it? The Supremes held up the convictions in both cases, but they admonished the lower courts and told them to keep their morals out of it. They refused to give reasonable doubt a concrete definition. It's possible there's no way to define it without taking away its magic. But sometimes when you can't define something, you can use an analogy to explain the concept. I found an awesome video on YouTube. You'll find the link in the liner notes. It's an interview with a defense lawyer named J.P. Plachecki, who is telling a story about his mentor, a lawyer named Dougie Thompson. Thompson had this thing he did for the jury in his closing arguments sometimes. He would explain the concept of beyond a reasonable doubt by explaining how he had this prescription for cold medicine. He'd get out the bottle and shake it. He'd tell the jury there were 12 pills inside, just like there were 12 people on the jury. Then Dougie would take out two pills and put them in his hand. Now, he'd say these two pills are the two jurors that believe the defendant is innocent. Those pills are cyanide. Then he'd put the two pills back in the bottle with the rest and shake it up again. So who wants a cold pill? Anyone? It's a cool idea, right? Dougie looked at the jury as a collective. And if there were two people convinced of a man's innocence, then it was much safer for the rest of the jury to side with them and be wrong than it would be to assume they are mistaken and gamble on someone's life. Dig it. Does that trouble you? That sometimes we let bad people go because we aren't 100% certain they did it? Because they were clever enough to fool us? Maybe it troubles you because you still believe deep down that we live in a world where we can know the truth if we try hard enough. I'm sorry to say, that's not the world we ended up in. We live in a universe full of doubt. That brings us to Rene Descartes. Descartes is one of the founding fathers of modern philosophy and probably a name you want to remember. He was a Frenchman, and as far as I can tell, never smiled when someone painted his portrait. A rather serious man. Descartes' father was a bigwig in the French parliament, and when Descartes' mother died after giving birth to him in 1596, he was shipped off to live with his grandmother. In school, he studied mathematics and physics, and then got a law degree as his father wanted him to be a lawyer. But instead, he joined up with a group of Dutch mercenaries during the Thirty Years' War, where he fought in the Battle of the White Mountain, where 4,000 souls perished. 
It was right after this battle that Descartes claims he received a number of visions. This was while he was stationed in Bavaria in the middle of a very cold winter. To escape the cold, he locked himself in a small room with a little furnace. During the night, he had these weird visions that sometimes included loud sounds. Some theorize that what he experienced that night is what's known as exploding head syndrome. It sounds worse than it is. What happens is when a person's under a lot of stress and they're falling asleep, sometimes they'll hear a loud explosion like a, like a shotgun going off next to their head. It's usually associated with sleep disorders. I can attest to that a bit. This happened to me a couple times in college, usually after all-night study sessions. In any event, these visions inspired Descartes to create a new sort of philosophy on the universe itself. He came out of that warm little room convinced that all truths were connected, that each little truth stood on the shoulders of a baser truth that came before, and that there must, at the very bottom, be some absolute, undeniable truth. So Descartes went searching for that ultimate truth from which everything else rises. At first he thought maybe it started with our senses, that maybe we could at least trust what we see and feel and smell, but that didn't work. Senses are not infallible. We can't trust our eyes. They play tricks on us, make us see water on the horizon of a desert, or four fingers instead of two if we had a little too much to drink. Can't trust our noses either. Sometimes he who smelled it did not doubt it, right? Also, when we're dreaming, we think what we see and hear is really real. We're totally tricked into thinking that the dream world is the real world. So who's to say this world is nothing but a dream? Sound familiar? Yeah, Descartes' thought puzzles were the inspiration for The Matrix. Except in his stories, Descartes' world was an illusion made by an evil demon and not a bunch of machines. In fact, there was just one thing that Descartes knew to be true, one thing he could trust, and that was this. I think, therefore, I am. Cogito ergo sum. He knew he existed because he was conscious, because he was thinking. Everything else might be an illusion, but he existed. At least he had that. This method of doubting everything else in the universe became known as Cartesian doubt, and it formed the basis of the scientific method. Doubt everything at the beginning. Work towards proving what you can through observation and experimentation. Descartes would have made a terrible juror. There's this process at the beginning of every trial where the lawyers get to pick which jurors they want on the jury pool. It's called voir dire. The lawyers are also allowed to select a few jurors to dismiss for any reason they'd like. Descartes would have been the first one kicked out of the courtroom. I don't think he'd ever comfortably convict someone. For him, there's always room for doubt. Now that's fine and all for philosophy, but we live in a world that needs some kind of justice system. There must be a reckoning for crimes, but we can take Descartes' general idea and apply it to cases to be good jury members. It's good to doubt every piece of evidence. Eyewitness testimony, for example, is notoriously unreliable, and sometimes a murder weapon can be explained away. But is your doubt reasonable? If you've got a guy on video shooting a deli store clerk, and the gun is registered to him, and he has no alibi, and he posted on Facebook about how he totally killed a guy, you can rest easy knowing you did the right thing. Descartes would not be happy without 100% proof, but maybe we can still be comfortable 
with 99.9. Reasonable doubt is a wonderful failsafe for innocent people, a touch of grace in a broken system, and we take it for granted. But did you know that in two states, reasonable doubt still isn't enough to keep a guy out of prison? In Louisiana and Oregon, some rich white men who were in power a hundred years ago got real nervous giving black people the power to keep their kin out of the clink. They argued that black people couldn't be trusted to serve as impartial jurors in crimes involving other black people, and so their vote should count less. So criminal cases in both states can have split verdicts. So if one or two jurors have a reasonable doubt and refuse to cast a vote for guilty, the defendant is still found guilty. And that's how Michael Shannon ended up in prison for a murder he did not commit. November 21st, 2004, the Gentilly District of New Orleans. 46-year-old Ralph Cole Jr. and two of his friends are cruising around the Big Easy on the back of their motorcycles. They take a break at a gas station, parking on a grass median. Suddenly, a man approaches with a gun and shoots Cole twice in the head before jumping into a nearby car and speeding away. There were seven witnesses to the murder, and they all agreed that the shooter was black and over six feet tall. After interviewing Cole's friends, detectives came to believe the killing was connected to an altercation that took place at Southern University a few weeks prior. On October 30th, Cole's brother, Darren, was showing off his motorcycle on campus and burned some rubber, sending gravel into the air, hitting a man named Wayne Palmer. An anonymous tipster called police and claimed that Palmer asked his cousin, Michael Shannon, to kill Darren. But then Shannon mistook Cole for his brother and shot him instead. Police showed Shannon's picture to three witnesses. Two identified Shannon as the shooter, one did not. Based on this evidence, police arrested Shannon and the case went to trial where it was revealed that one of the eyewitnesses that placed the gun in Shannon's hand was not wearing her glasses at the time and was not shown Shannon's photograph until six months after the incident. All the witnesses agreed that the perp was over six foot, maybe as tall as six foot three, but Shannon stands only five feet six inches. Two jurors had reasonable doubt that Shannon committed this crime, but with a split vote of 10 to 2, Shannon was convicted in 2011. He remained in prison for five years until he was exonerated. Even the district attorney has since acknowledged that Shannon is innocent. There's a great article by Emily Bazelon that ran in The Times, which covers Shannon's case, as well as a bunch of others caught up in this racist system. The Supreme Court will soon hear the case of one Evangelisto Ramos, a Louisiana man who was convicted of murder by a 10-2 split jury. It's likely that the Supremes will find his conviction to be unconstitutional and put an end to ununanimous verdicts once and for all. Then the question becomes, what do we do with the thousands of men sitting in prison under similar conditions? Do we just say sorry and let them free? Where do you stand on reasonable doubt? How would you vote if you were a member of the jury in a murder case? When you think of what reasonable doubt means, perhaps it would be better to imagine that it was you sitting where the defendant sits, trusting his fate to 12 strangers. Maybe even a little doubt is entirely unreasonable.
The Philosophy of Crime is a Fearful Symmetry production. This episode was recorded by Jeff Koval at the State Level Recording Studio in Fairlawn, Ohio. It was produced and edited by William Menke. I'm James Renner. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit jamesrenner.com where you can find more information on my true crime books and novels. My website also has a link to the nonprofit I started last year, The Porchlight Project, which raises money for new DNA tests for Ohio cold cases. It's easy to donate online, and every little bit helps. William Mankey also writes the music for this podcast. Look for his other creations, including Genius Dice, wooden dice that give an artful twist to your gaming night, and his new Dueling Pints drinking game. It's rock, paper, scissors on a pint glass. Both are available on Amazon. Until next time, remember there's a simple but challenging solution to the epidemic of crime. If everyone took the time to make good friends with their neighbors, we would know when someone needs our help before they become a statistic. Don't be fearful of the world. Make friends and make it better. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.